0: Well, believe it or not, I must have told Dave my opening line about drinking from a fire hose earlier because he's captured it in the introductory remarks. This sermon, as you can probably tell, is going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about the, and it's based on the completion of a year's study in the Book of Romans. So think back on uh, the subjects that have been covered, the places you've found them, And yet, I think it's really important to go through the whole book and see the overall message of the Apostle Paul. And that's really what Romans is, the orderly presentation of the gospel, the whole gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. But it also gives us a great vision, a great vision of the mind of God. So, I suggest this is something we can all use, so let's go hold on to your hat because it's going to be going fast. The introduction to the uh, book of Romans, and if, if you want to get your Bible out, I'm going to have mine right up here so you can see when I turn the pages. But uh, the introduction is found in the first oh, quarter of the first chapter. And Paul wrote uh, it's really he introduces the subject of the book of Romans. Now, you're going to become a little hazy, but I'll be able to read my, read my Bible and notes a little bit better. It was the gospel that Paul was bringing to the world, and it wasn't an easy job. The gospel was seldom received with thrill, thrilling responses. There was always opposition that seemed to be present, and Paul dealt with it. It's an entirely new concept to the world that Paul introduced, uh, an entirely new one. And it's based on Jesus' resurrection. Without the risen Christ, there is no gospel. Without the risen Christ, there is no salvation that we can be confident with. And Paul knew that very well. As the Lord spoke directly to him on the road to Damascus, told him he had a job for him to do. And he went on to do it. And so he is coming here and writing this letter to the church at Rome. Rome was the capital. It was the Washington, D.C. and the the New York City and probably Los Angeles all rolled into one of the world. It was the place where everybody came, at, the, at kind of the center of the world. And... The Apostle Paul introduced this, and he, the most notable verse in this first half of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, and also to the Romans. (laughs) He was introducing it to the entire world, and it was an entirely new concept. Up to this time, there was one small group of people, the Jewish people, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that were singled out for very special blessing as far as God was concerned. They were to be the example for the rest of the world of how you could live with God himself. And God introduced himself in the law and through Moses and so forth, so I mean, this was, this was a big change. But Paul was introducing something different because he said to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He was introducing the gospel to the Gentiles. The next, oh, from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, talks about God and sin talks about the background history of everyone that is dealing with this and it says therefore you're without an excuse He, he talks about the judgment of God he's angry because of the sin that was present in the world and the fact that they were suppressing the truth it wasn't that they were being the light for others they were suppressing the truth and in Contrast to God's holiness and perfection, the first humans rebelled against God. It was not just a mistake. It was a conscious rebellion. God had told them one thing that they shouldn't do, and they just decided they're going to do it. That's it. I'm a human being, don't you know? So I ought to be equal with God. And everybody that Paul was speaking to recognized that this was not true that it was the fact of the matter was God had created the heavens and the earth and God had every right to set the standards remember one thing i've got a very interesting chart in my bible that i find it interesting i find i refer to it quite often is to the birth and death of the old testament people you remember that adam lived to be 900 900, the same guy that walked in the Garden of Eden with God. Do you think in those 900 years anybody talked to Adam? They thought it might be a good idea to find out the guy that was actually there? And do you think God, Adam didn't tell them about God and his creation and all the animals that he had made and all the animals that Adam had named? And so what a thing to have a celebrity like Adam on this planet, and you're able to go and meet with him and talk with him. He lived all the way up to the time of Methuselah. He was there. So don't think these people were ignorant. They weren't ignorant. They had advantages that we didn't have. Adam wouldn't have been quiet. He'd have talked about it. People knew about the Creator. They knew about God. And they knew what God's standard was. And they decided they weren't going to do it. Nobody was. So they, instead of worshiping God, they decided they're going to make idols. Who? Oh. wonder who got that the idea the first time. There's nothing to an idol. But they can make a little statue or a little something, and that's, what, that's, that's my God. I'll bow down and I'll worship him. And he can say anything I say that he says. And so sin just abounded in the world up until Noah and the flood. But it says in, these two ch- in those two chapters that it affected their mental capacity. You don't think so? Read it. God allowed them to do it. He didn't step in and say, no, no, don't do this, don't do that. Uh-uh. He just let it roll. Only their mind became darkened. They got foolish, downright foolish. And that section... Up through and into the middle of chapter 3, verse 21 of chapter 3, just really concluded with a statement, all have sinned. There isn't anybody righteous. No, not one person. You believe that? How about our world? How do they like to hear that message? Not very well people have rebelled against that message all through the history of this this whole thing and here was Paul that was part of what he was saying you've all sinned God condemns you you need something there's got to, if there's a way out of this you haven't got it because there's nothing you can pay back to God and in chapter three, in the middle of chapter three, something that you don't notice all that much verse twenty one Starts off with the word, but. There's none righteous, no, not one. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the gospel. Paul says the righteousness of God has been revealed, not the righteousness of men. This has all been taken over by God, and it's revealed. And that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And right after that, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says this, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Woe! Now that's, those are verses that are well worth memorizing. I can't read them without emphasizing that. But it's the righteousness of God that is revealed. God took over this whole project of salvation. And he said, there's a way of salvation as of right now because of my son, Jesus Christ. And that is a huge change. That's just, that's revolutionary. And it changed everything. Because there's only one way of salvation. There's only one Jesus Christ. And he is the one that died. He is the one that became the propitiation and a propitiation is what turns a wrathful God and the throne of God, where you would walk up and not be able to even face God, became the throne of grace. And we're encouraged to get busy in the book of Hebrews. It says, come before the throne of grace. Pray. Do it. Because God is looking forward to hearing from you. Because God has provided salvation. All of it. Total there's no work. There's no condition. It's all in the, the ones who believe through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. That's the gospel. And that's the main part of Paul's, Paul's uh, message. And it's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And it says justification is available from God. Because of Jesus Christ. Justification. That's not just a not guilty plea. That's a statement that these people are righteous. These people are godly people. They're justified before God, before the Holy God, whose whole idea, his whole persona of judgment and, justific- and, and concern for sin has been covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. There's nothing to be added. Now, the book of Romans continues. That's chapter 4, and I think that's one of the biggest biggest reverses in the whole scriptures. But, but, now the righteousness of God is revealed. So don't think you're adding anything to it because there's nothing you can add. Chapter 4 is about Abraham. What about Abraham? Abraham, it was said was considered to be righteous by God. How would that happen? What did he do? Well, How did he please God? Well, what it says is he pleased God because he believed in God. And the righteousness that he had was given to him by God because of his faith in God. And he's demonstrated that faith that he packed up from the civilized world, which, which was Ur of the Chaldees, And he went to a land that he'd never seen before, but God said he was going to give to him. And he went and became a great nation. Chapter 4. The righteousness is sourced in faith and not law. That was even before there was a nation of Israel. Justification of Abe. Peace with God, is mentioned in chapter 5. Therefore, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is accomplished. It's a done deal for all those that believe in Jesus Christ. And that's a result of complete justification by faith from Abraham to the present day. That includes the time of the law, the time of revelation, the time of promises of God. And it says... We've got peace with God, those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Isn't that something? We're not worried about the judgmental side of God. We've got peace with God because we're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. Sin and death are connected before God. This chapter 5 talks about the fact that sin came by one man. Who was that? That was good old Adam, nine hundred years old. Nine hundred years old. He entered sin, and death arrived on the planet. That's the source of it. That's why there's a limit to how long we live. That's that's how how the mortality rate is still one hundred percent on this planet. Some of us by reason of strength, have made it to 80 years. We celebrate Molly making it to 80 years today. And it's a grace of God. But he doesn't guarantee 80 years to anybody. What he says is three score and ten. That's 75 if you take the old English out of it. But Adam brought in death, one man. And the same way it said Jesus... Brings in life by one man. There is no additions to Jesus Christ. It is all about him. And justification, to the extent that anyone has it by faith, is all in 100% in Jesus Christ. It is not people who are changed. It is not an improvement process. It is a change process. And God declares us to be justified because of Jesus Christ, because of what his son has done in dying on the cross for us. Only one person, and there's nothing to be added to it. It's personal faith in Jesus Christ as he is, who he is. Demanding as that may be, that's the person that we come to to find salvation. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 is an interesting chapter. It introduces the subject of baptism. And as far as I'm concerned, the only baptism that is being described there is baptism by immersion. Now, I'm one of those people who has been baptized twice. I got baptized as in my christening as a Presbyterian. And that's okay. But it didn't assure that I was going to be saved, I can tell you that. And sometimes people think that. The only baptism that really tells this story is the baptism of immersion. We could fill this tank up and have a a graphic demonstration. But here's what, what happens, isn't it? The person testifies that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we say, okay, on that testimony, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you dunk them. And you pick them up again. That's a very important part of baptism. (laughs) I've seen some baptism where it has some really big guys in there and a little guy trying to do the baptism. You had to have a little help to get them up. But here's what it pictures It pictures a person committing themselves to Jesus Christ. And they become in Christ. They are united to Jesus Christ. And they go down into death with Jesus Christ. As far as their God is concerned, they died in Jesus Christ. And they came up again in newness of life. With a desire to really please God. That's what it's all about. And it's a demonstration of what we believe. And we are in Christ, it says. And frankly, nothing else matters. We've got a connection to Jesus Christ with his death, and that is, it pronounces us saved. And sin and the power of sin over us is broken forever. Let's see, where does that say that? We should, yeah. Knowing this. Chapter 6 and verse 6. Easy one to remember. That our old self was crucified with him. That our body of sin might be done away with. And that we should no longer be slaves from sin. Slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Slaves to sin. Did you know without Jesus Christ, people haven't got much choice about sinning? They're just going to do it. i managed big organizations. And I never thought, frankly, that I could trust anybody to do the right thing all the time. And I could prove to you that it didn't work. The only people that are ever able to disappoint me are Christians, are believers. Because we are not slaves to sin. We can make a choice not to sin. And God's going to help us through it. So, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Alive again in newness of life. Able to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're to consider ourselves. Do you look at yourself like that, as dead in Christ and no longer slaves to sin in life? No law for us, just grace. Wow. Wow. This is a complete salvation that the Apostle Paul is laying out there. And it's all of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7. An interesting chapter. It basically reminds us that the law doesn't apply to dead people. The law doesn't apply to Christians. We're totally set, three, set free you get over to chapter 7 and verse 23, and it says, I, uh, I joyfully concert, concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which I, is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Paul say, Paul's that saying that of himself. Every time I think I'm going to do something good, I don't. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. The law doesn't bind us anymore. And those of us that know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we are free totally from the law. The strange thing is we're not free from sin, are we? How does that happen? Now, it would have been real simple if the Lord had just taken away our old nature at the time we accepted Christ. (laughs) He didn't. We still have battles to be won in our life. Chapter 8, and there's several sections to Chapter 8 that really introduce some important things. Chapter 8 says the Holy Spirit because of our faith in Jesus Christ, takes up residence within us. The Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells us as believers. And it's to be the mark of believers. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> oh, there's great news, isn't it? That's a terrific verse. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're supposed to demonstrate that. And there's no excuses, really. The Holy Spirit is right present within us. We don't have to shout for him to hear it. We don't have to do anything. He's right there with us. He knows exactly what's going on. All we have to do is bring him into our lives and trust him to help us. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Trust the Holy Spirit, just like you trust Jesus Christ. He's there, and he's there to reveal Christ to us. We read that in the in the book of John. But that's a mark of believers. As the Ephesians says, <laughs> says the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the earnest money that holds the house until we have the rest of the money for it, till we get the mortgage or whatever else. That's the Holy Spirit. He's with us. God himself indwells the believer at the time of our salvation. That is when the Holy Spirit, Colossians 1, takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the shift in that. And yet you still have the conflict of our flesh and the Holy Spirit. Whoa. We haven't removed the sin in our flesh. Living will involve spiritual conflict. Sometimes I think that we ought to have a warning label on salvation. It doesn't mean we got peace of mind. Because when we sin, the Holy Spirit's right there to nail us good. I think it sensitizes our, he sensitizes our conscience. There in chapter 8, we are advised that we are adopted into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. And since we're adopted, (laughs) we have all the rights of children. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what it says. Nothing short of that. Remembered in the will. <laughs> Adopted into the family of God. Now, look, chapter 8 also says the whole world is affected by sin. It groans, moans, because it's looking forward to a time when Jesus Christ rules and it straightens everything out beyond anything, anywhere. The end of chapter eight has a magnificent relationship described. That is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, it says, it says, God foreknew all this. He predestined us. He set it set it in motion. Furthermore, he called and he justified, and we, see, we are seen presently as glorified because that's such a, such a sure deal. We are going to be in God's presence in glory at one day as believers with all the rest of the church. We sang that hymn, there's a line in there, till all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. What a day that's going to be. So, we're adopted into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, and we have an absolutely magnificent relationship to Jesus Christ, and it's absolutely secure. And it goes on to say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You got a better deal than that? I don't think so. I think that is the thing to be relied on in our lives. There are times when we discover that that sin nature has led us astray. And Satan's right there to poke into our ear and say, Ha ha, you did that again. He's never going to forgive that. Forget it. That's wrong. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is a created thing, Satan is. And he's listed. And there's no way he can separate us from the love of God. Beyond anything, Anywhere, we have that relationship to Jesus Christ. And it's a lasting relationship. We come to verse chapter 9, 10, and 11. That deal with the issue of Israel. And it's sort of 9 is past, 10 is present, 11 is future. The way of salvation is completely new. And the people that really needed to understand that was the Jewish people. Separate privileges all over. They had everything. You read the whole Old Testament, it's all there. The, the whole idea of atonement. The whole idea of being able to get sin forgiven. A priesthood, a temple, sacrifices, the ordinances, the, the clothes to wear, the whole thing described completely. But that time of the operation of God is over with. This is the time of the Gentiles. It says in the Old Testament there's going to come a time when God is going to use the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Really? You mean his people that were supposed to be the object lesson of grace and goodness? They're not going to make it. They're not going to do it. And the way that they're going to be called back is that God is going to make them jealous of the Gentiles because of the way he blesses the Gentiles. And we just described salvation. Complete justification. There is nothing to be added. There is no religious observance that is to be added to any of that. It's all of God. And all those that are saved, the believers, are in Christ today. Now, we learn about Israel in the Old Testament. There's lots of lessons we can learn there. But God is gracious today, not judgmental. All judgment has been completed in Jesus' death. The propitiatory propitiatory sacrifice has been accepted. And God is a God of grace. And then these three chapters, it unfolds the fact that this plan of salvation that God has constructed all out of Israel is now going to be changed a bit and the Gentiles are grafted into that plan of salvation. Not because God picked them out in the first place, but the salvation is going to be the same and it's from God and all, all are saved by faith in Christ. That's the way it is. That is really a a hard change to make, particularly for Israel. Most of the resistance to the gospel in the early days came from Israel, because everything was being set aside. What? Why? Why? No, Have you seen the temple there in Jerusalem? That doesn't mean anything anymore. How about the priesthood? How about the law? What happens to the law? law doesn't apply to those who are alive in Christ, right? We covered that in chapter 7. So Paul lays that out. And then comes chapter 12, because that's 9, 10, and 11. So you can turn a couple pages, and you come to chapter 12. And there is a change, a huge change in application there. It's a change of direction. He is no longer explaining salvation. He's focusing on how to live as a believer and what should be the impact of salvation. There's a huge change there. I think there's a huge change there in the middle of chapter 3, and there's a huge change here in the start of chapter 12. And it says, based on everything that's gone before in this letter, our response is to be worship. Worship, to ascribe the glory that's due God's name to God himself. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is primary as far as our reaction to all that God has done in presenting the gospel and in providing salvation. And then he goes on to say that Christians are supposed to be nonconformists. Had you ever thought about that? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's how, that's how to live. That introduces this major shift here in, in chapter 12. There's one body, the church, and it's to be seen. There aren't any alternative groups or methods or, or alternative lifestyles that are part of the church We are members with other believers. Should result in humility. (laughs) Doesn't always. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives gifts to believers. The ability to do certain things. The members of the church, we are to serve one another with with what the talents are that the Holy Spirit has given to us. And that service to one another is spelled out kind of up to the middle of chapter 12. From then on, there are some specifics. First off is Christians are not to, be, not to be vengeful people. They're not to be looking to pay back. Verse 17, never pay back for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men as possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So we're not uh, left with the job to straighten everybody out and to put some penalties out for those that are rejecting God. God didn't give us that job. We're to be kind to enemies. We're to overcome evil with good an unearthly standard. There are times when I don't enjoy reading about this. I think I'd like to straighten it out, and I'd like to do it quick. That isn't an alternative, incidentally. Then chapter 13 spells out a lifestyle of submission. Christians are not to be rebellious people. One of the hardest questions I ever got in a panel discussion came from one of my smart-aleck young people in Detroit, who said, how is it possible, and we got a whole audience of people, and I was dragooned into being on this panel. I want to ask Evan, because he's going to law school, how, how could people possibly be rebellious and rebel against the King of England to establish this country? Because this chapter says you should obey government at all costs, at all times. Terrible question to get in public. (laughs) I'm not even sure I've got got a good answer for this public, but I can say it was a resistance to tyranny. But the loyalists had a point. You don't think much about loyalists, but there was a good segment of the population that were loyal to the king. And we always like to think, oh, all our relatives were out there with a gun taking this country where it belonged. Wasn't always the case. We had a young man that Don got to know when he went to Wheaton who came for Thanksgiving. We discovered that he was from a loyalist family who had left this country and gone to the Bahamas rather than deal deal with the revolution. Solid Christian. Terrific guy. Hard to accept. (laughs) But the principle is of an ordered society, and the people that are running government are there by the result of God allowing them to be there, and the burden of proof is on anybody that wants to do something different. Normally, we are to obey authorities, obey the law, we're not to carouse and get drunk, but rather we're to put on the armor of light that people know who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. I think John, I think John Glock ended, ended this section up, as I, as I recall, with wake up, clean up, and grow up. Not a bad application. Chapter 14 talks about avoiding dissension. Gets into some differences between Christians. Some people said you couldn't eat meat offered to idols. The Apostle Paul said, hey, I know there's nothing to an idol. That's nothing. That's a piece of junk. However, if someone gets stumbled by you eating meat, don't eat the meat. Idols are nothing, and the strong Christians are not fooled, yet superstition abides. Rather, the strong to, than to force their opinion is to carry the weak. Don't play. Then there's a principle that's mentioned here, and don't put obstacles in the front of Christians. They can make others stumble and fall, and it can affect their can, can affect their life. Don't put an obstacle in front of them by insisting on our own personal liberty. I'm not sure I like that section either. Drinking or abstaining can do it. Spiritual damage can be caused by liberty. Don't do it. Chapter 15 prioritizes unity. The example is Jesus Christ, who never pleased himself here. That's just not was not done, and it goes along with that idea of bearing the weaknesses of the of the weak. We're to accept one another without a whole lot of conditions. Goodness, knowledge, ministry comes from Him. It all comes from Him. Make sure your message comes from Him as well. All blessing and accomplishment. Comes from Jesus Christ to the, to the believer. We like to take a little credit or have a little recognition, but it's all in His power. That's who we are as Christians. It includes failed trips, the Apostle Paul would say. It includes giving, money. Everything's in His hands, and prayer is a crucial element. Chapter 16. There are believers that are recognized, probably people we never heard of. Individuals are not forgotten by God, and that's a good example for us. The small jobs are critical, and each person is treasured by God because of Jesus Christ. That's just the way this is. There's a final warning in chapter 16. It says, be wise in separating good from evil. Be wise in what is good, verse 19, and innocent in what is evil. That's quite an exhortation, isn't it? Be careful with what you think is good because if you overemphasize it, it can turn into a stumbling block. And be innocent in what is evil. That's a knowledgeable result, I think. We're to be a good example. And we need to be wise in separating good and and evil. And then it goes on to say, look out for dissenters. Look out for ones that are always looking for an argument. You've never run into anybody like that, have you? As a Christian. We don't do it by smooth talking. Don't give them the platform to speak. Support the missionaries. And finally, there's at the end of the book of Romans, there's a benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedient, the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. All of Romans, it seems to me, applies today. Now people count the presence of the Holy Spirit count church churches count the Lord is still working and we can experience that work in our lives therefore be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil we made it 1230 right on time. Let's close in prayer. Father, what a great book the book of Romans is. What a sweep is present in explaining and understanding the gospel and the salvation that comes to a believer that brings us peace with God and the Lord Jesus Christ, brings us the ability to live for him, raises us again to newness of life, in in relation to the resurrected Christ. We are thankful for the completeness of salvation, for the way that we are loved and for the way we can't lose it because it all comes from you. It wasn't something that we earned. It is nothing to be earned. It is to be taken by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are thankful for it. We give glory to you because all the glory is due to you. Anything that we accomplish is accomplished for you. Bless us as we separate now. Take us home in safety. We just would commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.